Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben, as always. Uh, today, we're, uh, we're way overseas. Uh, in fact, it, I, I believe it might even be tomorrow where I'm talking, um, which is already mind kind of, mind kind of bending. Um, and as a Doctor Who fan, I kind of enjoy that. But um, we're talking to uh, Dr. Kate Gould, who's over at Monash University in uh, in Australia. Welcome to the show, Kate. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. So excited. Um, I've uh, been doing a couple interviews lately, uh, uh, kind of on... This hasn't been intentionally the topic, but I've noticed that sort of other countries kind of practice positive behavior support in sort of different ways. And... Um, as in in my search for you know other other folks doing PBS, I came upon um, a couple of papers from from Dr. Gould that really that, that were really new to me, and I hadn't sort of heard of um, PBS sort of applied in this kind of way, and so I thought it was really interesting, and so got a hold of a couple of papers, did a little reading, and got a hold of Dr. Gould, who was kind enough to join me on the podcast, and 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 her and her team are just doing some really really innovative, neat kind of things that um, that I think a lot of other folks that may be practicing PBS might really value. Uh, Dr. Gould works as, as a neuropsychologist and kind of works in the area of uh, uh, traumatic and, and, and acquired brain injury, which I think is also really fascinating. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to kind of, um, uh, you know, taking this journey with, with you and, and, and uh, to kind of enlighten folks on just the cool things you folks are, 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 are doing down in Australia. Um, before we kind of get into sort of all that, I always like to kind of start with a, a bit of an origin story, kind of see how folks got into the field. Now, I know you're not a, you're not a, a behavior analyst per se, but I think a lot of what you do does fall into our realm. Uh, but I think you're going to obviously have a, a different origin story than a lot of the sort of BCBA folks out there. So I'd like, love to know kind of how you got into, I guess, neuropsychology, um, and then, and, and sort of how you developed an interest in TBI and ABI. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's so cool that you're so interested in our work. It's it's lovely to bring the work that we're doing to connect with all the other sort of PBS and behaviorist people in the world. So thank you so for following up on that interest in our work. In terms of how I got started in this field, I was always interested in psychology in the first instance, and that really came out because I was that I was that person at school that all the guys in particular would come to and ask about their relationship and girl problems. And so they kind of nudged me in the direction that I was pretty good at talking to people about their problems and maybe I should consider a pathway of a career in psychology and I thought that makes sense so I followed that up and as I was learning about what you could do as a psychologist I found out about neuroscience and I thought well if you are going to study and be a psychologist it makes sense to learn more about the brain so I did an undergraduate three-year degree in that was called a Bachelor of Behavioral Neuroscience, and I did that at Monash University. And then I did my uh, honors year, a fourth year research study in um, in psychology as well. It's actually looking at Parkinson's disease and uh, cognitive function. And then I, after a year out of working in research, I ended up achieving what I really wanted to do, which was 
to study neuropsychology. And so I did a doctorate of clinical neuropsychology also at Monash University, which was a, a fantastic program that brings together almost a full PhD in research plus uh, coursework for two years plus two years of, of placements and doing rotations to learn about all the different facets of neuropsychology where we work in geriatrics, paediatrics, neurology, psychiatry and rehabilitation. And I had already been quite interested in rehabilitation and I was really lucky enough to do a couple of rotations in an inpatient setting and in a community rehab setting. And both of those were really focused on acquired and traumatic brain injury. So typically things like um, car accidents, or strokes or falls. And on the other side, my research was also in traumatic brain injury. I was conducting a longitudinal prospective study of psychiatric disorders, you know, according to the DSM in people with traumatic brain injury. And so that was a really exciting project. And uh, I've just always been kind of really interested in brain injury because typically with acquired brain injuries like stroke or traumatic brain injury, there's one incident or event that really completely changes someone's life. And then following on from that, there's that opportunity to help them either kind of return and recover as much function as they can or redefine and, and readjust their life and, and help compensate for the difficulties they're having. And you can be with them along that path of improvement and rehabilitation that is just so fulfilling and that I was really drawn to. That's really cool. I, first, The first thing that really got me kind of giddy here, just in, in, in a kind of wishing in some ways I, I – I I, I I was living in Melbourne. Uh, the idea that you have a that you could have a have a bachelor of behavioral neuroscience degree. I mean, that's just an amazing specialty in and of itself for an undergrad. I think that's so cool, and, and just sort of what what a great sort of you know you know starting point to kind of move it into this direction. Uh, we have uh, a few programs now. I'm sure the 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 U.S. has a ton, but. In Canada, we've started to develop. There, there's a few programs now that are doing kind of bachelors in, in, in sort of applied behavior analysis and kind of positive behavior support. And I think it's just so nice to have these kind of real specialized undergrad programs versus sort of a general intro to psych program or whatever, kind of you know set the tone. So I think that that that, that that's really cool that you had that opportunity. Yeah, it was um, um it was really exciting. We had access to the whole um, anatomy lab and you know, cadavers and um, really very hands-on in, in our yeah. learning with the brain. And that was just pretty amazing when you're 18 years old to have that kind Absolutely. of training and, and education. Uh, it was really cool. Really neat. You talk about kind of, um, there's so many fascinating things about kind of TBI and ABI, I think, that really... And, 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 and I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of these as we kind of go on, but, but they really differ from, I think, a lot of the other applications of, uh, of I guess, sort of behavior support processes. Um, you know, I mean, uh, typically, you know, ABA, and I know that's not exactly what the kind of stuff you're doing, but typically ABA has been sort of a, you know, focus on kind of autism and developmental disabilities and sort of those sorts of things. It's definitely in a lot of other areas now. Um, um, and some really neat areas that where it's being done, but originally it kind of started there. And 
in a sense, you know, those were those are not in a sense. Those are also neurological type disorders, um, you know, that, uh, you know, involve, you know, uh, brain differences and so on and so forth, except that those are things that, you know, you know, folks are born with. And so they kind of start that way. And so, you know, I think the whole kind of idea of TBI and, and that you've had folks that, you know, prior to this, this one incident, like the car accident or the fall that you talk about, you know, not necessarily neurotypical. I mean, I suppose they could be neurodiverse as well. Uh, but they, they had, you know, a normal, normal, as it were, ordinary kind of life lives uh, before that. And it was all sort of taken away. And, and, and kind of having that perspective is really, is really interesting. Before we kind of get into sort of, you know, those differences, though, sort of what, first off, what's kind of the difference between TBI and ABI, so traumatic brain injury versus acquired brain injury? And then what are kind of like the, the most kind of common issues that, that sort of come out of that that would require, you know, the support of, of, I guess, a neuropsychologist or someone else like that? So a traumatic brain injury is one type of acquired brain injury. Acquired brain injury is more the umbrella term that describes any kind of insult or injury or potentially illness to the brain that's acquired after birth as opposed to something congenital. And so under the ABI umbrella, you'd also have, you know, stroke, um, a, a range of other conditions affecting the brain. So dementias can come under the umbrella of ABI, but because mm. they're neurodegenerative, sometimes they are sort of uh, studied in a, in a different uh, way. Right. And uh, yeah, traumatic brain injury is one of the key areas, but things like epilepsy can also, you know, lead and be associated with acquired brain injury and, and a whole range of other conditions. But yeah, my, my interest is, has mostly been in traumatic brain injury. And, and that's okay. because of where I've done my research, where we're um, part of a, a rehabilitation healthcare system that, that actually treats at an inpatient community and outpatient level um, people who've had traumatic brain injuries. And so in terms of then what are the kind of common issues that a neuropsychologist would um, assist with for someone with a traumatic brain injury, for those who, who aren't aware what the difference is between a neuropsychologist and a, a general psychologist or a clinical yes. psychologist, um, we're in neuropsychology, we're more interested in treating and understanding conditions that affect the brain. So mm. in particular, that would be how the brain and behavior are linked and how somebody is functioning in terms of their cognition or thinking skills, so their memory, attention, reasoning, their um, psychological well-being, you know, depression, anxiety, adjustment, coping, dealing with pain, and then behavior change as well. So it kind of comes under an umbrella of, of the neuropsychological or neuropsychiatric issues that we deal with. For people with a traumatic brain injury, they do experience all of those issues. Um, so uh, cognitive change, psychological impact, behavior change, as well as things like pain, fatigue, sleep changes, headaches, balance difficulty, communication issues on all sorts of levels, a whole range. And it really depends on where the brain has been injured, how severely mm. it's been injured, what kind of recovery and, and support, but also what was the brain like before? As you said, mm -hmm. they could be neurotypical or have had any kind of difficulties beforehand. And 
what we found is that TBI, car accidents, falls, they don't happen completely randomly. There are mm. predictors of who is more likely to have those difficulties. So, for example, it's about 75% males who have a traumatic brain injury and they are in that kind of 20 to 40-year age group typically yep. and that's when the in Australia at least when the re, the reason or the way they sustained their traumatic brain injuries from a car accident True. because as we know they're more likely to be risk-taking um, maybe yep. speeding driving under the influence of alcohol and they're also more likely to survive an accident because they are fit and and healthy and so you are going to have then an individual who has broadly the same lifespan as somebody without the injury so they've mm -hmm. got all their productive years ahead of them with, with a whole range of difficulties. And then you see another peak in the older age group of falls of people with a traumatic brain injury. So you're going to get very different kinds of injury to the brain depending on the mechanism of injury and the severity of the injury because a traumatic brain injury includes a whole spectrum from a mild TBI, also called a concussion, all the way up to severe brain injury and catastrophic brain injuries where you've got people who are broadly nonverbal, non-responsive. So it's a very wide scope of functioning and each person is going to experience their own presentation of difficulties in their mood, thinking and behaviour, as well as all those other aspects. So we're often working with a multidisciplinary team of speech therapists and occupational therapists and psychiatrists to um, and care workers to sort of unpack and, and support all those issues for people in that severe end. Really cool. You know, and I, and I, and I was talking to you before when we kind of chatted a couple of weeks ago that, you know, I didn't even realise sort of the sort of TBI and ABI are, are uh, neuropsychologists are the professional that deal with those. And, and, uh, and, and I don't know, I don't know if that's the case sort of um, around the world or not, but um, it does seem like kind of in, uh, and we're going to kind of get into sort of interventions and that sort of thing soon, but it does sort of seem like, at least in my neck of the woods, that, you know, when, when someone sustains a, a traumatic brain injury, that, it's usually kind of some kind of, you know, vocational kind of rehab sort of program. It reminds me a lot of sort of the workers' compensation programs you might have if you, you know, hurt your back mm. at work and, and uh, you know, they kind of put you into a bit of a program. And, and uh, I don't know that neuropsychologists are the, are the folks that are kind of involved in that. And it, it seems to make a lot of sense. One, one thing I really liked about uh, you had shared – a bunch of wonderful research with me to kind of review before we met. And what I really like about sort of uh, the, you know, the, the six or seven papers that you kind of sent me is they all kind of build on each other. And it, and it really tells kind of a, a really neat kind of story of sort of how you, how you and your team kind of got to where you are and, and, and how you how you selected you know interventions and then really goes in nice around sort of the I guess social validity I guess of of uh, of these processes as you talk, start to talk about sort of the perspectives of both those implementing therapies but also those receiving and so I'd like to kind of start with um, which and, and I don't and I don't know that these are actually in order of uh, uh, of date, but they just seem to be kind of in order of story for me. 
uh, you start the article that you kind of started up with, where where uh, I believe it was uh, Amelia Hicks was the, the 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 first author, and you're the second author around behaviors of concern following moderate to severe TBI in individuals living in the community. So I think you kind of start by identifying, you know, uh, potential challenging behaviors that might kind of come out of that, and then kind of from there you know, before even kind of thinking about sort of the supports, there you have another paper where you start to talk about the people's perspective of, of those behaviors of concern, which I just thought was just brilliant um, to sort of, you know, right from the get-go, long before we're even going to start looking at interventions, let's look at the perspective of these people, you know, who are engaging in these behaviors and see if we can kind of get some ideas. So maybe we could start by just talking a bit about that first paper around the, the sort of the behaviors of concern and, mm-hmm. and kind of what you found, and then maybe slide into the next one around sort of their perspectives and kind of what you found. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com Go to the store and enter the three secret words for this episode. The first secret word is injury. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think we were really glad we did those papers because it's so valuable to hear from the people with the living expertise themselves about how they view the problems, how they view supports and what they want and need. Um, It's really important that we're constantly having a a discourse and bringing on board the people who are those that are going to use the interventions and the research. And so that's a really big part of the way I conduct research is wherever possible and more and more in the work that I'm doing, using co-design principles and listening to people so we're not creating things in a vacuum that miss the mark. So we did that in a mixed methods approach, which is, as you've so aptly seen, is published in two papers, one looking at the qualitative findings and one looking at the quantitative findings. Mm. So we did a quantitative survey of, um, I think it was 127 individuals, 89 had traumatic brain injury, mostly severe brain injury, and they were uh, about 11 years after their injury. And we also interviewed uh, their close others, so family members and carers as well, about their perspectives of behaviour. And we were trying to understand, you know, how often is this coming up for as an issue for people in the years post-injury? What kind of supports are they receiving and what do they want and need? And um, we did find that when we use the overt behaviour scale, which is a really common measure here that was designed by Australian researchers, Glenn Kelly, Graham Simpson and colleagues, to objectively quantify behaviour change in people with brain injury, that uh, we found just over 70% of the people that we interviewed did have behaviour change on that measure. And they had 
rather than just one behaviour, they, they had on average three different behaviours. And we found that the most common behaviour changes were verbal aggression behaviours, socially inappropriate behaviour and reduced initiation. And so that was pretty uh, concordant with what other studies have found in our field as well, that those are the key issues. Uh, that being said, other behaviour issues did emerge, particularly across the whole kind of measure. So physical aggression, um, sexually inappropriate behaviour, wandering, absconding, but but at lower levels. And so that's really helpful to understand what are those main concerns. And it should be said that th th this particular sample were individuals with severe brain injury. But we do know that people with milder um, injuries do experience greater levels of irritability, so up to 70% experiencing irritability and can experience low frustration tolerance and increased anger as well, but typically aren't needing these more intensive behaviour interventions. That being said, they may still benefit from the approaches and, and, and conceptualization of behaviour change in this group. So before you keep going, um, uh, that's a really good explanation. What what do you mean by initiation? Just like starting conversations or? It can be starting and continuing anything. It might be um, somebody might be doing the dishes and they'll they'll need a prompt to get started and it might be mm. wash the plates and then they might need another prompt, okay, now wash the cups or it mm. might be prompts for having a shower or taking their medication or um, looking before you cross the road it can be um, to do for more high functioning people it might be you know to do paperwork or to you know pay their bills or you know a, a mm. whole a whole range of activities it's really sure. individual but it can actually be really problematic uh, put a huge strain and burden on the people around them that need to providing those prompts and then, of course, increased costs as well if those um, individuals require paid support services to assist. Right. So is that essentially a, is that like an issue of memory? So they're just not remembering how to start or remembering the next step in a sequence or is there something else that's going on? Well, the interesting thing is just you, you can observe that those behaviours are occurring, but you need to do more digging to figure out why that behaviour right. is occurring. So it could be related to memory, it could be related to motivation, it could be related to lack of skill, or it could be related to that frontal lobe brain injury, which you know does have that kind of starter engine. Um, and so it can be a very sort of frontal brain injury sort of presentation to to not have initiation. Um, but really interestingly in terms, if we can dip into a little bit of um, neurobiology, I think what's interesting about, you know, brain injuries that even though anywhere in the brain could be injured if you're in a car accident, for example, or a fall, it is typically the frontal and temporal lobes that are damaged more often than not. And it's particularly the prefrontal cortex that is really of interest in terms of understanding behavior regulation. So it's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that is typically associated when there's a lesion or a damage with that reduced initiation, lack of drive, lethargy, slowness, reduced spontaneity, and also things like apathy, loss of interest, reduced attention, 
poor grooming. But then just um, to the front of that area of the brain in the orbitofrontal prefrontal cortex, that's where you can get that explosiveness, impulsivity, disinhibition. Mm. So what's really interesting is because they are served by different parts of the brain, you can have both reduced initiation, that kind of lack of drive and lack of activity, and also that explosiveness and aggression huh. and impulsivity in the same person because it's different parts of the brain. So that can be kind of confusing for family members and carers yes. and treaters to make sense of why can't they do these everyday tasks or things they're being kind of encouraged to do, but then they can, you know, blow up or are really impulsive and saying things in an unfiltered way. That's really interesting, yeah, because because that would be really confusing. and. Especially, and if you were kind of going in and using sort of, you know, standard kind of even sort of functional behavior assessment kind of methods, you still might get kind of confused. Are are those sorts of differences? Are they diagnosed through brain imaging, or are they design? Are they, or is it more through sort of interviewing and observation, or or a little both? Yeah, it's always a, a combination. It's it's kind of detective work, putting all the pieces together. Back when neuropsychology started, I'm not exactly sure how many years ago. But um, back in the time before there was neuroimaging, the role of a neuropsychologist was to undertake very careful cognitive testing through paper and pencil tasks and and questioning and uh, sort of knowledge tests and um, activities to actually try to pinpoint where in the brain the damage had occurred based on their responses to tasks. But since the advent of neuroimaging, we have sort of shifted our role in, in that, you know, the brain scan, the MRI, the CT scan can pinpoint where the damage has occurred. And so now it's looking at, you know, what does that mean in terms of the person's cognitive functioning and everyday functioning? Because that can be different as well. What someone can do in a quiet room with their their neuropsychologist on testing might be very different in an everyday space where there's loud noises and lots of distractions and all sorts of things. So you're looking at a combination of pulling the pieces together of your understanding of what kind of injury they had, their functioning beforehand, where in the brain the injury happened, how severe it was, how they've gone on testing, what's happening in a day-to-day sense, what are the observations, exploring that with questions as well to try to yeah, make sense of why these things are happening. But I guess from, if we can maybe, I guess we're sort of skipping ahead, but, you know, it's also figuring out like what is the most important to understand. It's not just about mm-hmm. an academic kind of right. exploration of why it has to be linked to something meaningful that's getting in the way for that person and that by addressing it will help them achieve meaningful life participation and mm-hmm. roles. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I think that I think it's really important to not just to to look at sort of the, you know, kind of kind of the 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 final almost like the final product here. It's not necessarily initiation that we have to fix. It's you know what problems are caused by being unable to initiate. Exactly. Right. So looking at that sort of second half of that study, the qualitative mm-hmm. piece. Um, what was the perspective of of, of these men? Mm. Yeah, so it was interviews we conducted, so qualitative, in-depth, open-ended, uh, sort of somewhat structured uh, qualitative interviews. With, we had um, 
nine men with traumatic brain injury. We, we were not targeting men. It's just how it came about. We had nine um, family members, carers, and also seven clinicians. And I believe that this was the first time people with brain injury had been asked directly about behavior in a study yeah. like this. And I'm so glad we did because I think that the, the themes that we identified were some of the things that you would expect about trying to understand the context for behaviours around things like environment and social connection and relationships and meaningful participation. And of course, the the brain injury was a key contributor to behaviours of concern. But the other elements that we picked up, I think, were really, you know, from a personal perspective, really valuable. So we picked up that mood was an important factor to understand behaviour but also things like the person's sense of identity and how that had really been disrupted from their pre-injury identity and sense of self, the way they saw themselves um, after the injury and and sort of how they wanted to be and that there was a recognition that they would changed. You know, I never used to be a fighter, but now if somebody annoys me, I'll just hit them. Mm. Uh, and another aspect was their sense of control and that, you know, before the injury, there was someone who typically was in full control of their life and everyday decisions. And since their injury, a lot of control had been and taken away from them. And that often was a reason for their frustration and anger and that they were trying to take control in some way. And sometimes that was by losing control and, and becoming angry. So I, I think these were all really important factors for understanding why the behaviours occurred, but they were kind of reciprocal. So as the person um, engaged in challenging behaviours, that had a negative impact on their relationships, their participation, their mood, their control, their identity, so that you could get stuck in these sort of vicious cycles. But what was also really interesting through these interviews was that not only were these factors helpful for understanding why behaviours occur and what the impact of the behaviours were, but they also became really clear targets for intervention, that each of these facets needed to be considered. So, for example, in terms of meaningful participation, we had this lovely quote from a clinician who described this gentleman as going from, you know, breaking furniture in anger to Mm -hmm. making furniture as a project and a hobby and that that was really key to kind of rebuilding his identity, having something meaningful to do during his life as well. That's really cool. Um, So you you, you, you talked to... In the individuals themselves, and you kind of talk to sort of family members or close others, those sorts of folks, because often, and and because I think I think the folks that are listening right now, you, 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 they may not be working in sort of the brain injury sort of realm, and maybe working kind of with other populations. But I think the work that you're doing, you know, it really sets a, an important example for folks on questions we need to be asking before we jump into, you know providing services for people and that we really need that perspective of, of those individuals, you know, and, and, you know, because, you know, the the whole, the whole idea of co-design and co-production that you, you've been talking about, I think is just, is so important. And what we find is sort of in, in kind of in our realm. And so I worked for a, a PBS consulting agency and we primarily do sort of parent and staff training and try to transfer knowledge and whatnot. But, most of our information 
about that individual comes from those parents, comes from those caregivers, comes from those staff and sort of what their perspective on kind of what needs to be improved. And it's often things that are kind of affecting their lives versus sort of what's affecting the actual, you know, individual. Did you Mm -hmm. find that the sort of the, when you're doing that kind of thematic analysis, did you find that the, the close others and the clinicians and the caregivers that their perspectives were similar to the actual perspectives of the individuals? Yeah, actually we did. We found that broadly, perhaps not always to the same degree, but certainly in terms of the pattern, that there was a lot of equivalence between the report of the person with the injury and the close other. And I think that's it's so key that we are, you know, we're talking about you know, someone's life and mm-hmm. when it's all the other people sort of talking about what they need to be able to manage the person or, you know, reduce their burden, you know, it can be my experience is that, well, we're talking about that person so it's person-centred with always having that person at the centre of the conversations. But sometimes that can mean that the person themselves is is not included in mm-hmm. in deciding what will happen for them for their life and obviously that is going to depend on the capacity of the person but i think that's that should be where you start with the person being the one to direct and decide what they want for their life and and then you know supporting that person to be in that active role as much as possible so we did find in in that um that survey paper that yeah, we had quite similar levels of reporting of, of behaviour issues from the family members and the close or close others and the person with traumatic brain injury, but perhaps a somewhat um, higher level of, of mm. reporting from close others. And that's what we typically see, not just in behaviour issues, but in a range of other different um, problems after the injury that there can be a you know, it's hard to know where the sort of real truth is and in a way it doesn't really matter, but that there there can be a little bit of, yeah, under-reporting potentially from the person with the injury, but still recognition generally of the mm-hmm. issues. Now, obviously interviewing nine people isn't going to be representative of of the world's population, but, you know, I think it does give some promise to sort of, you know, situations where maybe the individual isn't able to communicate, um, you know, Due to, due to the injury and they've, they've lost the vocal ability or or some other sort of brain sort of insult that's going to lead to a lack of communication. Um, potentially caregivers' perspectives um, could be accurate. Mm, yeah, so it's really, I think, perhaps even just starting by asking the person, do mm-hmm. you have any concerns about behaviour? Have you noticed that you're getting more angry or cranky or having difficulties at when you're engaging with other people and seeing what they say. And, and that gives that, I think that's really important, you know, and as a psychologist, you're helping the person to gain insight and understanding where possible on the challenges. And that's a starting place to then help them work out, well, is that something you want to work on? Is that something mm-hmm. we could try to explore and see if we can improve? And sometimes that takes a lot of time and patience. Um, I have one client who I've been working with for 10 years and early on you, you couldn't talk about the fact that he has anger issues and behaviour issues. But slowly, slowly we've sort of, as we've built a really strong relationship, we've been able to explore that 
and able to then start exploring some strategies to try to help with you know self-regulation calming down breathing walking away or what about how you walk away should you storm off and leave and no one knows where you are or perhaps you know saying I need a break and I'll be back in 10 minutes and now we've sort of got he's become so comfortable with this idea that he's actually and in the true spirit of my you know brand of co-design when I conduct um, lectures now to Monash students, he he comes along to the lecture on behaviour assessment and he shares his experiences and the students can talk to him about, about his behaviour and about assessment. And when we do a behaviour assessment, he is involved in working out what we are going to assess and how we're going to assess it. Yes. And he is part of that. And so he does some of the ratings. He rates, for example how angry he is in his feeling out of five and then how angry he is in his behaviour out of five. And so we're trying to help him navigate. You know, we all get angry, that's okay, but it's about how you manage your response to that anger, how you behave with that anger and trying to, even if the number for feeling is high, get the behaviour score lower and that's a success. Even if it's just one point lower, that shows that you've regulated a little bit and we'll just build on that. And so then, you know, when there are other elements to record for behaviour charting, then also with co-design, his carers and other team members, they're involved in working out what are we going to record. And that way we get much better buy-in into completing the recordings and and making it useful for everyone, not just for me in terms of designing Mm. what we're going to do. And that's been so rewarding Um, and I've actually just noticed since that he's been coming to help me with those lectures, that his, you know, sense of, you know, competency and agency around that has really Mm. just skyrocketed. And it's now a new part of his identity, that he's an educator, that he's helping the next uh, generation of clinicians learn how to be, you know, really more than person-centred, person-driven in their approach to behaviour. Yeah. I suppose he could even be involved in sort of, you know, helping with other, other cases too, in, in some ways, no? Yeah. And we, um, we do, um, have that as well. So I, for all the lectures, I have a different client that comes along and shares their story. And, um, for some clients, that's one of their goals. I would like to share my story. So we did that for another client last week and that was so exciting for him. But yeah, in terms of that kind of peer mentorship that is certainly something that we we look to set up because they have that living expertise and their personal account of what they're going through is so so much more powerful than us as a clinician just telling people what to do and we've really harnessed that in um, another project I'm working on where using positive behavior support approaches to tackle a really tricky situation where one of my clients became apparent that he was involved in an online romance scam. And mm. because of his brain injury, he really struggled to disengage and to stop contacting the scammer. And so we worked on, you know, creating a project for him, working with, you know, trying to sort of shape his identity from this unknowing victim to a survivor and then to an advocate. And so now he and I um, have been doing um, sort of an awareness campaign and speaking to groups about the risk of scams for people and other online sort of 
issues for people yeah, with brain yeah. injury and other cognitive disability. We give them smartphones and say, hey, this will help your memory or organisation, but we're not sort of teaching people. But there are also risks. There are scammers. There are mm-hmm. people, you know, stealing your information or money that you need to be careful of. And so we've been really lucky that that has become a, its own project. We are now co-creating a um, cyber safety project for people with brain injury and we've formed a peer mentorship group that they've called themselves the unscammables and um, <laughs> which is awesome very superhero super cool and yeah. they've um, very kindly agreed for us to use video interviews of them sharing their scam stories and those videos are part of and the key part of the training and it is so much more powerful we've had uh, when when my client Colin was you know speaking at a conference, another individual there heard Colin sharing his story and turned to his support worker and said, "I think that happened to me. I think I was scammed." Wow. And from that, you know, it was a real, you know, awakening and he was able to disengage from what would have been, a, you know, a very serious incident. He had been um, transferring tens of thousands of dollars in mobile phones for a scammer. So there could have been some, you know, illegal ramifications for mm-hmm. that that he was able to identify from hearing someone sharing their lived story. So that's a really big part of the work that I do um, so because cool. it's it's just so powerful when you see it well and this is something kind of the 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 company i work for and sort of a lot of the folks kind of in there uh, autism is a big focus um and uh and working with autistic folk and there there's been a real push of late um i think the push has been happening for decades but i think folks are just starting to listen now um to really include you know, uh, autistic voices and sort of all levels of, of sort of treatment. So research and and uh, and teaching and, and really kind of essentially all the examples that you brought up. This is this is what uh, the autistic um, sort of, sort of advocates are, are are really calling for. Is you know is, is involvement in sort of every piece of the pie as we go along. Mm. And again, I really I, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen in North America for those that are listening. But it really seems to happen a lot more uh, in, in in Australia and in the UK. Um, sort of this idea of co-production and co-design. Uh, uh, you know, I think I think you folks are like are, are many years kind of ahead of the curve when it when it kind of comes to that piece. And I think in the long term, I, I think just I think until we we catch up over here, you know, we're never going to be able to really kind of get to that next level of, of support and service. So that's really amazing. You, you talked about, um, and I think it's maybe a good segue into sort of what initially, you know, uh, brought brought me to you and your work uh, around sort of person-centered and person-driven kind of ideas um, and, and about your use of uh, positive behavior support approaches. Uh, what really struck me just from reading the, the an article headline was this concept of um, this thing that, that was called PBS plus plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, you know rolls off the tongue a little a little crazily. Just, but, um, just PBS Plus will do. <laughs> PBS Plus will do. Yeah, I think yep. that's simpler. I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, uh, a couple of papers down the road we just see the one plus. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, aside aside from the, my initial confusion, it was it was um, I just because I had never sort of heard of uh, sort of positive behavior support framed in that way. 
uh, and, and kind of started kind of diving into the paper and, and you've kind of come up with some really interesting concepts. So maybe just kind of going from the, the beginning here, sort of mm. how did you kind of come to start using positive behavior support and how did it kind of, you know, evolve into this PBS plus sort of uh, um, a framework and, and what's that all about? The second secret word is stroke. Sure. Well, the reason that we went down the PBS pathways because of that formative work that we had done scoping out with people with living experience of brain injury and challenging behaviours close others and clinicians and and identifying that that they really saw that there was this unmet need for additional support for uh, challenging behaviours. And we also canvassed uh, community clinicians in Australia of neuropsych OTs and other providers and also identified doing, again, mixed methods, surveys and in-depth interviews that they were also really struggling with behaviour and interventions. There wasn't enough training. There wasn't enough, enough supervision and support. They weren't feeling confident. They didn't actually, we asked them, do, do you know what PBS is? And, and many people weren't really quite sure what that was about. And the way that we at Monash became sort of aware of the work in PBS was through Tim Feeney, who's in uh, New York. And his background is from, you know, decades of work in this space, first with the, you know, the autism, learning, disability, youth sector, and then taking that to young people with brain injury and then adults with brain injury as well, in partnership with his mentor, Mark Ilversacker, who's since passed away. And so Mark was a, a speech therapist and, and Tim Feeney is a educational psychologist, but they kind of operate beyond those sort of disciplines, sort of sort of spheres and they are really leaders worldwide in this space of positive behavior supports in the brain injury world. And so they have been traveling the world for, for decades, including um, very luckily a lot of time and a lot of visits to Australia to teach us about PBS and how that can be best used in brain injury. And so we're very lucky that we received a, a really large grant from the Transport Accident Commission in Victoria through their sort of research arm, mm. ISCA, to partner with Tim Feeney and to try to conduct um, potentially the world's first controlled, randomised controlled trial of positive behaviour supports for challenging behaviours in adults with brain injury. Mm. And so then Tim became our mentor and taught us, if, you know, I'm sure uh, a lot of what he knows, um, I'm sure there's a lot more besides about mm -hmm. um, PBS and brain injury. Um, I'd also been very lucky to work for a number of years in a, in a private practice which really specialised in challenging behaviour after brain injury, led by Sue Sloan, who's an occupational therapist and neuropsychologist. So I got that lovely kind of cross-disciplinary training in that way as well. And then, you know, building up from from all that training and then the model that Tim uses, which um, is published in, in a book called Collaborative Brain Injury Intervention, Positive Everyday Routines, that it covers behaviour and a whole range of other difficulties post-injury. And so we brought together this group of amazing clinicians of um, other neuropsychs, occupational therapists and speech therapists as well. And we operated in a really transdisciplinary way. So we, we did bring our own discipline to it, but we were also trying to use these PBS approaches, drawing from both the kind of traditional widespread positive behaviour 
elements and also the um, the work of Mark Ilvesacker and Tim Feeney where they have collated also a whole range of different strategies that are really relevant to people with brain injury and particularly executive dysfunction and um, emotional difficulties. So it's kind of a, a repackaging and a sort of just sort of evolution of, of all the work that's gone before. So it's not necessarily brand new, but it's it's mm-hmm. a way to kind of pull together what I see as three kind of aspects of this work. So at the kind of foundation are the four key principles we have, which just um, not by coincidence uh, is using the acronym of PLUS, P-L-U-S, uh-huh. <laughs> and they are that we are first and foremost person-driven. L is for that we learn together what works and doesn't work in a systematic mm. way. U is for uniting supports and being really collaborative and fostering those long-term relationships with the person and their people around them. And then S is for skill building and building up the person's particularly kind of self-regulation skills, but also any other sort of neuropsychological or communication or emotional skills that the person needs to ultimately build a meaningful life and self-regulate behavior. And so we've got that foundation of those four principles. Then we have a flexible framework where we start with identifying what the person's meaningful outcomes are. What's the big deals mm. to them? What what does a good look life look like to them? And then breaking those down into the sort of smaller goals and looking at the obstacles to those goals. And those obstacles will include the behaviour the environment, social and personal factors. And getting that person to identify with support as needed what those behaviour obstacles are means that that person has that buy-in and engagement to addressing the behaviour because it's so directly linked to those goals which are directly linked to what a meaningful outcome looks like to them. And so we're also looking at what those person's strengths are and and skills and and the supports. We come up with a plan. We um, help sort of take a step back and just sort of think about whether that person is ready and has the skills and and is sort of an understanding of what that plan will look like. So we try to predict how that will go. And then after we try that, then it's a process of reviewing what worked, what didn't work and um, adjusting as we go. And in terms of then what the intervention itself looks like, that's going to really depend on what the person's goals are. And But we're drawing in through that framework a, a kind of a menu of strategies drawn from the cognitive executive aspects and the PBS aspects as well to try to understand, you know, why the behaviours are occurring, what's getting in the way, what to try in a kind of systematic you know, theoretical experimental approach. Right on. Yeah, it's just a really neat kind of, uh, you know, and, and we'll have the links to, to these papers and and, uh, and to all these great folks that you've mentioned in, in the show notes. The uh, It just seems like it's kind of like like a next level PBS, you know? And I think one piece that, that really, you know, really is uh, – Probably one of the, the 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 big key. There's probably two two key pieces here. I think that I think that really help make make this sort of differ from sort of you know the the kind of positive behavior support that I'm familiar with. Now, positive behavior support, as I understand it, has a foundation of kind of applied behavior analysis as far as sort of the, the teaching techniques. And I think a lot of what I kind of see in in in, in this paper, as far as being those strategies, are probably similar. But then it also incorporates, uh, you know, person-centered planning as being a big part, and that often involves, you know, 
you know, things like a lot of common kind of, I don't know how, how, how well, how much these are sort of known around the world, but there's things like path and maps and, and, uh, circles of support. These are sort of, uh, person-centered planning kind of frameworks that we use to kind of, you know, get the individual and all the important people in their life, um, kind of sitting around them in a kind of a large sort of meeting set up. And then you start to kind of develop visions and, and, and sort of future goals and, and where they see themselves and develop action plans and all these wonderful things. And, and I think sometimes, you know, those methods can work really well. And, and, you know, if you've got a, a really, you know, a motivated team, you know, some of those action items do get followed up on. But I find, at least in my perspective, and I, and if there's any sort of more in-depth person-centered planning practitioners out there that sort of maybe disagree with me, I'd love to hear from you. But the person-centered approach isn't as inclusive as it sounds. And, uh, you know, and, and it's certainly more inclusive than other approaches. It's more inclusive mm-hmm. than sort of the medical expert model of, of you know, the doctors coming in and just telling you what to do. I mean, there's, they were incorporating those perspectives of, of those people in their lives. But I think the, 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 the key phrase in, in, in the P and plus is this, per, is this idea of it being person driven. And I think this really just kind of goes back to um, all the great things you shared around, you know, uh, co-design and, and, and other folks uh, again in Australia that I've heard of that talk about co-production and, and and basically everything you've shared already about having that individual involved in every single aspect of the process, including the assessment, picking those strategies and, and, and just every piece is truly inclusive. Um, and, and I just think that makes just such a huge difference. And I think it can, can be a real game changer for folks that sort of change. Things. I think some folks will think they're already doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some folks may be afraid in terms of sort of um, – if you've got an individual maybe that engages in a lot of challenging behavior and having them included in a meeting with a bunch of people or whatever, um, what has been your experience using that PBS plus model person driven piece? What, 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 what's that been like? And maybe some examples of kind of what you've seen there. Yeah, I'll, I'll share two things. One is that when I started doing this project, um, and we, we ran this trial from, 2015 till last year so it was a really massive effort to to recruit and um, conduct this project we provided up to 12 months of this transdisciplinary input to we had 49 people in the in the study that were randomized to treatment in the first year or after a wait list treatment as usual period and then we followed everyone up for a year so some individuals who were randomized to wait for a year and then get the therapy and then get a, a follow-up year. We're actually involved for three years. So it was a really large project. And we're very lucky that we started this pre-pandemic and um, Tim Feeney was able to come from America and do on-the-ground training with us, with our clients a number of times. So that was just an incredible once-in-a-lifetime experience for me, which I'm so grateful for, for his training and, and friendship too over the years. And it was pretty amazing as we sort of started this project. And as I said, people with traumatic brain injury and acquired brain injury can cover this full spectrum from being, you know, nonverbal all the way up to really high functioning. And that was certainly represented in our project where I was working with individuals who were completing their master's post-injury and individuals who were nonverbal and um, 
so this particular instance, which really stands out to me, was for a, a, a man I was working with who was living in a, a group accommodation setting in a group home and had a, a really large team in place and, and a supportive brother. And this individual, his behaviours included sort of grabbing his shirt and pulling it over his head. He would he would bash his arm. He would um, groan loudly. And so as we were trying to, you know, get to, to meet him and understand him and the team's needs, we were, were setting up a, a team meeting and sort of sitting around the lounge room in a bunch of chairs, about 10 people or so. And Tim was really sort of leading the way here. And he said, Let, let's bring the client into the meeting. And everyone was like, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. That's too overstimulating, too overwhelming. He'll engage in behaviours that will be disruptive for us, distressing for him. And, uh, you know, it was really about that kind of call out for, you know, nothing about me without me. And so Tim's like, well, could we just try this and see how it goes? And we'll sort of see it as a bit of an experiment. Like everything we do, you know, you have a theory that this is going to be disruptive and won't work. There's another theory I'm putting out there that it's actually, you know, really important to have the person at at who this is about in every way that is we can optimize it to the maximal extent that he is participating and leading and and um, involved in this. And so the team, you know, Tim is a very convincing guy, very charismatic, and so they're willing to give it a shot. And so the client, you know, came into into the um, the group, and he did engage in some behaviors of concern at the start, but within a few minutes, he calmed. He settled and what was, I think, interesting and hard for me to know given I wasn't involved before this is that the discussions around what we were doing were much more, I guess, considered about him because he was in the room Mm. and he was quiet and, and it was hard to know how much he was taking in or not. We still sort of found it really hard to, to get a sense of his comprehension and and awareness in everyday situations but it gave us as a team that opportunity to just give it a shot and I think what it did do is it started to shift the approach and the attitudes within the team and within the support workers and it created this sense of let's just try some things out let's see where we can get to with this and one of the really pivotal situations occurred when typically because of those behaviors he was he was fed his meals by staff in a different space to the rest of the individuals in the home who were sitting around a table and and this gentleman was in a in a wheelchair uh when the one of his key support workers would take him out into the community she tried something different she cut up his food into sort of manageable pieces. I think it was a sandwich and some slices of banana. And she put it on the table in front of him at the park and he started feeding himself. And she got, you know, was so excited to see this. Uh-huh. She recorded a video of it on her phone. She came back to the house and started sharing that with, with the rest of the team who were also really excited. And bit by bit, he was then now sitting at the table with the other residents. His food was prepared for him in a way that he could self-feed. He's mm-hmm. now participating, engaging. He's not this sort of too hard basket individual that just need, was typically just put in front of a TV on his own. 
And so you've got this whole shift in terms of his quality of life and his participation, but also a shift in the team, both in terms of, you know, helping him to, you know, maximise his participation and enjoyment and quality of life, but also in their sort of sense of optimism and trying things out. And I think that was just really eye-opening. And it, and it, for me, it, it sort of helped me kind of check in with where maybe I've been person-centered but not person-driven and to really step it up. And it can be scary. And I guess the second part I wanted to mention is that we continue to do everything we do, we're kind of researching, you know, every nook and cranny out of. And so we have done qualitative interviews with the participants in the um, trial about their experience mm. of receiving the intervention and also interviews with the clinicians about their experience of doing this intervention. And the clinicians have told us, myself as a clinician in the project too, that that being kind of person-driven and being kind of seeing yourself on equal footing with the person and their family members, seeing them as the experts on their lives and you bringing into this work the expertise you have from your training and working with other clients, but recognizing that that doesn't mean you know what's best for this person. And that's about that collaborative aspect. And that can be you know, whilst at the same time rewarding and, you know, related to really good outcomes, it can also be really hard. It can be hard for the therapist to sort of let go from some of that power and that sort of feeling like you know all the answers and and having to sit with that space of not not knowing what's going, what this is going to look like. And it can also be really hard for the family member and the person who are used to having these therapists come in and just fix things and now they're expected to step up and learn how to do this approach and learn how to try some things out so that can be a real challenge too but for you know the people that are open and ready it has been incredibly powerful and they have looked at this approach in in contrast to the sorts and the styles of support that they've had before where it's really clinician led where it's you know my job is to you know, help you make a cup of tea in the kitchen. And and that's just not necessarily what the person wants. So um, a really inspiring individual in this space who's doing a lot of great work as a kind of someone who's a sort of agitator and sort of, you know, shaking up the system. His name's Caleb Rickson. And he talks about meet me where I'm at. And I think that's just such an important message is that rather than trying to force people along the pathway we want them to go on, we step to be alongside them and they can lead the way and we will support them, help them navigate the potholes and the difficulties up ahead. But it's up to them which direction they want for their life in conjunction with the family and and the close others and the other people that are key to that individual's life. So it is a... um, it's, it can be easier said than done, but I think that's where most of the work and the impact can come from. The third secret word is brain. Yeah, really cool. So inspiring. Um, so you talked about kind of the perspective that the sort of follow up perspectives of, you know, of, of the therapists. What was the. What was the perspective again? And and I and I and I imagine it was pretty good, just based on sort of the process you're using and the rapport building you've done, and and sort of all those pieces. How did the uh, actual sort of uh, uh, receivers of the service uh, take this process of mm. PBS Plus? Well, 
you know, really positively, luckily. Um, we were looking at it both in terms of the outcomes on our objective measures that were recorded at every four months by our amazing research team, Amelia Hicks leading up that that part of the project. And that we have a paper coming out on that shortly, just under review at the moment. Hopefully by the time this podcast episode comes out, there'll be a link for that. We have just published the paper looking at the qualitative interviews of people in the project. And the, the title of that um, paper is, I've never been positive, I am now. And what was really interesting and um, I, I do hear from people is that because of the work we're doing to try to understand the person and what they need, it's not always just focused on the behaviour and the brain injury. That comes mm. into it. But it does mean there's there's been you know, opportunity and capacity for that person to experience improvements compared to pre-injury. And mm. that's sort of called that post-traumatic growth where they're learning, for example, organizational skills or relationship skills that they didn't have before and that's that kind of in, being really inclusive and holistic is really key so when we looked at that experience from the perspectives of the individuals and close to others who received intervention we we have like four key themes the first was it was really pivotal in terms of what their outcome was going to be how they started out as we met them and started the intervention, what was their level of openness to change? So for some people, due to their prior experiences and, and also potentially due to their functional capacity and their level of insight and injury-related sort of disability, there were individuals who weren't particularly ready for change and then there were individuals who were desperate and so keen to get some support that was so individuals individualised like this. And then in terms of as we went through the intervention, a key aspect that came out very clearly was their connection with the clinician. And so that went beyond rapport. It went to having a really strong, trustful and genuine relationship with this person who was their clinician. And that was really facilitated by three factors, by recognition that their clinician had expertise in brain injury, by that compatibility they felt on a personal level and as well how adaptable and flexible that clinician was to their needs. So we tried something, we said we don't like it and then the clinician recognised that and tried something else. So that was really important. And then on the other level, the other sort of key facilitator of the benefits of PBS Plus was how it was really embedded. It was sort of integrated into their day-to-day -day life and that the skills that we were teaching about self-regulation of behaviour, for example, using those cognitive executive tools and strategies weren't just helpful often for the person with the injury but for the family members as well because often, as we know, they're sort of triggering off each other as it becomes more distressing. And so that was what they noted was that it was essential that the work was positive, it was inclusive, and then it was person-driven as well. And all of that together led to them feeling like they were more prepared for their future. They had a reduction in these challenging behaviours. They had greater knowledge of themselves and their ABI and how the ABI affected them. And they, they felt empowered because we were building up their skills, not just in terms of how to do to sort of learn the strategies, but also for the whole approach. We sort of have a demystification kind of process. Everything is overted. 
every kind of framework approach and principle we are sharing with the individuals and their family members and their teams as well to enable them to continue to the best of their ability this in the longer term. Acknowledging that you know life changes and there are episodic requirements for additional input but that that was a kind of focus from the beginning that they become you know they already are experts but that they also become experts in PBS as we go. So it was you know really fantastic um, and the article is what's really great about these qualitative articles is it's full of of quotes from the individuals themselves and they can say it in much much um, Mm -hmm. more sort of eloquent terms than I can because it's it's their life and their experience so so cool kind of before we wrap up it's just covered such a it's been such an awesome conversation I just love everything you're doing but I I was wondering and we didn't really talk about this in the in our pre-chat so forgive me if uh if 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 you're not prepared for this it's not a, it's not a paper question but i'm wondering i guess i'm wondering about sort of the kind of the real life kind of applicability of this process so often we see in these wonderful studies um you know that are often funded by a big grant um or some other method and and we have these wonderful you know the transdisciplinary team i think is just uh, is brilliant in the and sort of the, the time to kind of build those relationships with the clinicians and 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 with with the individuals themselves and and sort of all these pieces it is sort of the cost you know sort of the cost kind of associated with it now i i don't know if this is kind of where you're going to go one thing i do in in the very little experience that i've sort of had with with supporting folks with tbi two people in my career so far um both of them were were their injuries were the products uh, uh, of car accidents that weren't their fault, and so there was a mass massive amounts of funding available via auto insurance companies to sort of you know support and and provide kind of all they need. And so I don't know if I'm I'm already kind of answering the question myself, uh, but I'm just sort of wondering you know have you looked at that piece and and and, and sort of thought about sort of how this could become something that other other groups could apply without maybe all the resources? That's a really good point and, and so important. Where we're at now in terms of the project, and I'm happy to unpack that a bit further, is is translating this into community and clinical practice. Mm. And, you know, a cost uh, economical kind of evaluation of our project is something that we are planning to do. But it has been done before by Tim Feeney's group in, in New York, mm. and they have found that it does result in a reduction of costs. And I think that because it's, you know, linked to insurance schemes and things like that, it's so dependent on where in the world and where in the country you are as to what you have access to. We're so lucky in the state um, I live in, in Victoria, which is I think the second largest in terms of population in, in Australia, is that we have support from the Transport Accident Commission who, who funded our project mm-hmm. but on, and they have a real interest in, in research. But on top of that, we're also very lucky that if you have a motor vehicle accident, even if it's not if, whether it's your fault or not, you are covered for your therapy costs related to that injury essentially for life. Uh, we also, in the, during the um, our main trial, 
a, a new sort of funding model has been set up in Australia, a national disability insurance scheme that is funding for individuals with autism and, and intellectual disability and brain injury and a whole range of other lifelong and, 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 and sort of acute disabilities. So uh, that is another means of accessing funding and they mm. um, they promote positive behaviour support. That is a kind of key aspect of their approach to behaviour. So, you know, it is very individualised and I know that the work Tim Feeney does in America, a lot of that is run off the smell of an oily rag. Um, so it can <laughs> be done on, um, you know, limited means and certainly having more sessions is really um, valuable as well. And for some instances like the, the client I was talking about who had, um, we brought him into the middle of the meeting, that one, mm. uh, that case is written up in our paper. And I think we had a, approximately, you know, 10 or 12 hours for the year. And a lot of that work was working with the team and, and um, team meetings and, and facilitation. And, and some of the work was directly with him. But I think, you know, it does demonstrate that there is a great kind of flexibility and utility to an approach like this and and that being said like no intervention has you know a hundred percent efficacy and certainly you know there were individuals who didn't respond well and we have made sure to kind of highlight that in our papers as well mm. because I think that's just important for new clinicians and existing clinicians to sort of not give themselves too hard a time if if things aren't panning out because it's not always in our control and it's also not the case that um you know there's an intervention that is going to work for everyone mm -hmm. yeah so get, so yeah that makes sense and, and 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 by no means should you you know it be expected of sort of you folks in, in melbourne to develop a you know a, a intervention sort of um uh, framework that's applicable in in western canada um <laughs> you know i, I mean i I, th I think if 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 you can make it work in your own country and and have it be sort of generalized to sort of other settings, you know I think you can you can uh, you know uh, re retire knowing you've you, you've made a long term impact and feel good about that. And I think yeah I I kind of forgot about that point that you mentioned when we talked last about how Australia has kind of uh, uh, really t taken PBS right into sort of their you know their their government protocols and, and and they've kind of regulated PBS practice um, which is a whole other area which I do want to I want I want I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to have I'm going to, I'm not hoping to have I'm going to be having um, Dr. Uh, Johnson from uh, uh, the aspect uh, sort of autism center there and apparently and she and, and she, I think she played a, a large role in kind of getting those that that regulation and getting those um, those pieces put into place in that in the is it NDIS is that what you call it that's correct yeah and uh, um, uh, and uh, and making that happen so I'm looking forward to kind of digging deeper with her to kind of you know um, learn more about sort of how PBS in sort of other ways has really kind of grown and developed in Australia because it's, and I'm not, I'm not really asking a question here, but I'm just <laughs> sort of for the listeners, it's, it's quite a different sort of um, origin story, I think for PBS uh, in Australia than it is compared to sort of a lot of other places. Uh, and, and it's almost in a lot of ways, it's almost like, I, I don't know if it was intentional, but in some, somehow you, you folks have managed to sort of, remove all of the barriers that that we ran into over here with PBS 
and just jump right into the good stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and, and it's been really just really fascinating seeing, seeing the development and just watching the papers and listening to sort of people talk and the, and the kind of work you're doing. And so I think you're in a really, really nice environment for, uh, for, for growing this and developing this. And, and I, I know you're still got lots of time left in your career to, to, to bring some other really kind of cool pieces to this. So Really, I think it's. I think. I think the world. I think my point here is that the world needs to be watching kind of what's happening in your neck of the woods, um, because exactly. I think we. I think we can learn a lot and take a lot from this, and so yeah, really, really cool. So I, thank you know, you. I think we're. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we're kind of crossing in near the hour and a half mark, which is great, sort of the average length of both of these episodes. And, <laughs> you know, we just we've we've covered so much really really cool stuff. I just wondering if there's anything you'd kind of like to yes. sort of finish off and let the listeners yes. know about before we wrap I it up. Do I'm so excited to talk about where where we're heading with this work and. Um, yeah. Should be pretty clear. I'm very passionate about this. I feel like <laughs> it's my kind of life mission now to take what we're learning and we continue to learn and share it with the the community and the clinicians because you know that's what it's all about and that's what they've told us that they need. And so, um, so to now leading a sort of program of translating this into practice and one of the kind of linchpins of that is that I've started a a new service, a training clinic at Monash University called the Positive Behaviour Service and that we currently have um, neuropsychology students on their placement as part of their, you know, postgraduate training. So that's very exciting. And uh, we also have been writing up not a manual because we want to sort of stay away from the expectation that this is a, a formalised kind of a step-by-step approach. It needs to be more flexible. So we are kind of constructing a, a guidebook and that's using <laughs> co- co-design as well. So we have had input from our clinicians, people with brain injury and family members, and that's targeted towards clinicians with sort of handouts for family members and carers and people with brain injury. We're also working on our own podcast as well with uh, clinicians, family members and people with brain injury who are, you know, spending an episode talking about each aspect of the intervention, each tool, and sort of unpacking that from their own experience. And um, yeah, we'll we'll be kind of conducting training as well. And we have videos of of the sessions from the trial to, to share with our trainees as well. And so at the moment, that sort of sitting with neuropsychology, but the plan is for that to expand out to other disciplines as well. And, you know, if the kind of approach, the theoretical and sort of principles sort of sit well with people, then, you know, we hope that there's an opportunity to learn what this is, but also really mindful that this is really challenging work. It's so rewarding, but it's really tough. And each person brings with it their own unique sort of needs and there's so much kind of creativity that's needed to kind of design an intervention for each person so ongoing support and supervision is really crucial as well and so that's going to be another arm of our translation sort of establishing a community of practice around this this way that we work and um, hopefully bringing on on board other kind of passionate people um, from all sort of you know aspects of their different errands of their careers as well and different disciplines to to really build up the capacity in in Australia and eventually around the world to to help people because there is a real shortage of people now, uh, who are doing this work we now have the funding and models for that but um it is quite difficult to find the practitioners 
who have the availability, the skills and the confidence to do this. So that's what um, hopefully the next um, little while of my career will be um, focused on. That's amazing. Well, I hope I hope you'll come back on the podcast in a couple of years and kind of share some updates about the, the work you're doing and where you're Love at. Love to. Well, thanks again, uh, Kate. Uh, really, again, fantastic to have you on. I, I, I learned so much, um, and I think a lot of people will get a lot out of this. Uh, you know, uh, I, I imagine a lot of people will also be uh, looking up um, – you know, who, who this Tim Feeney fella is, because, um, you know, actually I, I threw his name around in, 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 in some circles back home here and, and, and it's not familiar. Um, uh, and yet I, I, but then I dived into some of his research and he's really, he's really done a lot of amazing things. So he's, he's sort of managed to sort of, um, escape the, uh, the PBS community uh, in some way and, and kind of just go and do his own thing. But um, so I, I definitely will be calling on him to kind of come on the podcast at yeah. some point too. Yeah, that would be great. Sense. I think though, that, you know, for a long time, what Tim tells me is that this was quite a controversial approach to PBS and it wasn't seen as the, oh, um, the kind of fitting with the expected model. And so, you know, maybe we also, we've just been really lucky. I think in Australia, we're a younger country and I think we're, you know, very dynamic and um, flexible and and sort of innovative with the way things do, with the way we do things. And I think Tim's had just an amazing response in Australia, but certainly I know he, you know, travels to New Zealand and all across America. And I I thought maybe Canada, but maybe different circles. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, uh, yeah, he'd be great for your audience as well. So thank Thank you so much for today. It's been so much fun and um, amazing Absolutely. to be able to talk about this with, with you. So thank you, Ben. Super cool. Thank you too. We'll, we'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye.